The Old Testament reading this morning is taken from the book of Numbers, chapters 21, verses 4 to 9. This can be found on page 158 of your church Bible. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take, away, take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is the word of the Lord. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's probably the most beloved verse in all of scripture. So why do some people wield it like it's a weapon so that it sounds more like a threat than a promise? If you've ever watched American football on TV, you've probably seen people strategically placed in the end zone so they'll be on camera holding up placards that say John 316 right there along with the signs that say crush them lions and kill the bears some people are intimidated by John 316 because it's presented as a, a warning you know one of those offers that you can't refuse Fear is a great motivator to get people to respond. So some evangelistic zealots put the emphasis on perish more than on eternal life. 
So it's tempting to read John 3.16 as if it were some sort of an ultimatum to choose up sides. And we put a lot of stock into which side we belong to, which tribe we're in. I mean, isn't it going to feel great for you Swiss folks this summer when the national team is playing in the World Cup and the U.S. and the Netherlands are not? (laughs) We even divide ourselves up and take pride in our religious affiliations. When somebody asks me my vocation, Sometimes I'll say, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, just so long as they don't, so they don't confuse me and think I might be part of one of those other, less sophisticated groups. We tend to classify ourselves by the groups that define us. But that's not how God judges us. Now, don't get me wrong. God values those things that make us distinctive. The fact that you're Chinese or heterosexual or conservative is something that makes you unique and special. But those distinctive things are not what makes God love us. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved Christians or Europeans or progressives. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And the world includes everybody. But still, you can't avoid the fact that John 3.16 does imply some sorting out. It presumes that not everyone is going to react the same way to God's love. It says everyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. And that implies that there are those who don't believe. And what happens to them? How are they judged? And who does the judging? You know, many of us have a preconceived image that keeps us from getting what John 3.16 is really telling us. Many of us have this image of God ingrained in our imagination that sees God as a stern old man sitting on a throne, passing judgment to every person as they wait in line to get through the pearly gates. He's got this ledger that has recorded on it everything you've done good on one side and everything you've done bad on the other side. He balances one against the other, factors in some mitigating circumstances, and then passes judgment. And there are themes in the Bible that support that image. I mean, Matthew 25 describes that last judgment where Jesus sorts people like a shepherd and sorts the sheep from the goats. Those who've fed the hungry taken in the stranger, visited the prisoner, will be welcomed into eternal glory. Those who neglected the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick, go to eternal punishment. But the point of that story is not so much that Jesus acts like a judge. He's sorting people by the way they've already responded to him. Those who, like Jesus, 
noticed and cared for others, especially the outcast and the poor that tended to be overlooked, they will continue to live in the fellowship of Jesus and those to whom he's brought the good news. And those who are too absorbed in, this, absorbed in themselves to notice that God loves the world will continue to live in that hell where you're the only one who matters. John 3.17 says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, this world God loves, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send Jesus to condemn us. God sent Jesus to be our light. Light shows things for what they are. In the light of Jesus, we see ourselves for who we truly are. And like the spring sunshine that draws life out of the trees that have been dormant all winter, that light gives life. Now, we all want to be seen in our best light. That's why some of us get nervous when old friends from our youth visit and start reminiscing about old times, especially if they're around our kids or those who've come to know us in our uh, more responsible years. Old friends sometimes know things about us that we would just as soon keep in the dark. But I don't know if your old friends are like mine, all you have to do is remind them that you know some things about them as well. And then you can reach kind of a standoff like the Soviet Union and the West had in the Cold War, a mutually assured destruction. But we need someone to shine light on us so we can see ourselves as we really are and do something about it. We need a spouse or a partner or a trusted friend who can be honest with us about those things that hurt us so that they're out in the light where they can be exposed and dealt with. We're very good at keeping ourselves in the dark so we can justify our harmful but familiar ways. The first step in recovery from an addiction is seeing who you are and admitting it. That's why at 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, People will introduce themselves by saying, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. You have to keep shedding light on the addiction or it keeps slipping back into the dark where it can exercise its destructive power. It takes courage to come into the light, to stand the exposure of who we truly are. Some things inside us are so powerful and so threatening that the only way we've survived is by keeping them in the shadows. Those things that shame us, that haunt us, those forces deep inside us that we can't control. It can be dangerous to expose them to the light. Just shining light on something can sometimes do more harm than good if there's no way to deal with what you see. 
nothing to fill the void that's left once the things we relied on are exposed for what they are. It doesn't do any good to tear down the defenses we've built around ourselves unless there's something stronger to take their place. Otherwise, we're left with an emptiness that will be filled by even more destructive things. Jesus had a parable about that. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, they became infected with resentment and anger. They'd been slaves back in Egypt. But after they'd been wandering in the wilderness for a long time, they kind of forgot about the way things had been back then, about those chains that had bound them. All that they remembered was the food their slave masters gave them. The Egyptians tried to control their population by killing their babies, but they'd forgotten that. They'd been forced to build Pharaoh's pyramids, but what they remembered was the water their slave masters gave them to drink when they were thirsty. Instead of gratitude for their freedom, for the manna that God provided, for their delivery from Pharaoh's army and the marauding tribes of the desert, they resented what they'd left behind. That resentment and anger infected them like a plague. It ate at the core of their community and undermined their well-being. It drove their focus in on themselves and away from the promises that God set before them, the land where God was leading them. Resentment and anger are like venomous snakes that slither among a community and kill off its spirit. The world changes. People feel threatened. In hindsight, people remember the gauzy world that they had, the things that uh, they uh, stand out as happy memories, and then they forget the others and resent that things are different from those halcyon days of their memory. Fear and resentment builds on itself. Inevitably, some present themselves as rescuers who can restore that nostalgic lost time. There were three people in the story in Numbers who did that. Korah, Dathan, Abiram were three men who told the Israelites that Moses was the source of their problems. They told the Israelites that if they would just get rid of Moses this one whom God had supposedly chosen to lead them out of Egypt, if instead they made them their leaders, then they would make everything all right, the way it used to be. They would have the food and the water, the leeks and the onions that they remembered so fondly from Egypt. But they didn't mention the chains and the whips that they'd left behind. It's that kind of nostalgia for the way things are imagined to have been, that resentment that things are different now that is driving this resurgent kind of populism that's so uh, rampant in many countries today. A new report in The Economist magazine says that democracy is under siege around the world. The number of full democracies in the world is actually declining 
As people are divided by their fears and resentments of a changing world, they look to more authoritarian alternatives that promise security in exchange for those things that they remember. If there's nothing better to replace what was bad, then you're likely to wind up with something even worse. Well, God knew what was going on among the people of Israel. Today's reading from the book of Numbers says that God sent venomous snakes among the people, that they bit them so that many died. Now, those snakes were the physical manifestations of that spiritual venom that was coursing through the community. By making their poisonous rumblings, their discontent and resentments visible in the form of those snakes, God let the people see and understand what was going on among them. The greatest threat was not the hot winds of the desert or the lack of variety of their diet, or the water shortages they had to endure. Their greatest threat was themselves, their submission to anger and resentment, their lack of faith in God's assurances that they were on the way to the promised land. So Moses fashioned a snake out of bronze a symbol of that power that was killing them, and he lifted it up on a pole. Whoever looked at that bronze serpent lifted up above them, whoever recognized and acknowledged their resentment and anger and bitterness that was eating at them, whoever saw what was hidden inside and brought it out into the open was saved from destruction. That's the image in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right before our beloved verse. That's the image of what Jesus has done on the cross. Jesus is lifted up among us. And all the forces that can destroy us, our angers, the resentments, the bitterness, the selfishness, all of those venomous powers are lifted up on that pole, the cross. Pain and rejection and death, all those things that lurk in the dark recesses of the human soul are lifted up for all to see to see that he has overcome resentment and fear and selfishness and greed and all those powers of sin that keep us from God and from one another. That cross draws from us all the venom that poisons the world, the world that God loves so much that he sent his one and only son. And not only does that cross of Jesus draw out all that venom that poisons us, in his light, we're revealed for who we truly are. Ephesians 2, chapter 10 says, We are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That light that radiates from the cross exposes our sins, but it also reveals who God really made us to be. You just heard how uh, IPC had such a wonderful response in support of the Shan people of Myanmar that we support. And there's kind of a feeling of euphoria among the congregation because we're helping take the gospel to those people, helping an injured young man get well. Well, all of that feeling of purpose and celebration is an insight into what we were made for. Earlier this morning, I had the privilege of sitting with the head Sunday school teachers. And one after another, they told how wonderful it makes them feel to share God's good news with these little children. Even on those mornings when they get up and really don't want to come, they wind up feeling lifted up. That's because that's who God made us to be. That peace and acceptance that you experience in home groups. That's the kind of community we were created to belong to. A community that cares about one another, gives freely to one another, that finds its deepest purpose in prayer and scripture. That sense of exaltation that you might feel from time to time as you sing a hymn or as the choir sings an anthem. That experience of being lifted up into a realm outside yourself, or maybe you feel it when you go off into the mountains. That's not just endorphins playing on your brain. That's what it's like to be in the presence of God. That presence which we glimpse from time to time in worship. When we're motivated by love and compassion and a spirit of welcome, we get a glimpse of what that eternal life is like. To quote John chapter 3 verse 21, Whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is the judgment, says John, that light has come into the world. That light shines on the dark corners of our souls. It shows us for who we are with our weaknesses and our prejudices and our sin. And that light also shows us as God created us to do the work of God, to follow the way of Jesus. In the light of Christ, we see ourselves for who we truly are. That is our judgment. That is our hope. To God be all glory, honor, and praise now and forever. Amen.